All right, have a seat. Good to see you. My name is Derek. Welcome to church. Good morning. Good. Um, if you have a Bible, Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11. This has been the, the text for us for the last five Sundays. Uh, it's incredible that we've had more, more than one person uh, per week tell me five weeks on the Sabbath, but we went ahead and did it. It was a struggle. I almost bailed the series after three weeks if you've been with us, but we made it. So give yourselves a hand and... Uh, it's good. But I'm sure you're ready to move on, and that's fine. I understand that. But we're going to read this text uh, for the last time in just a moment. Now, the heart of the text is the Sabbath. Of course, I've just said that, which was for Israel this commanded day off that they were supposed to take. And it was a very strict command for them. So it was like, work for six days, take the seventh day off, work another six days, take that seventh day off, and just keep repeating that until uh, I say when, which is pretty much what uh, God instructed them to do. So it was a very, very strict command for them. Now, on the Sabbath, they were supposed to basically pay attention to about four things. They're not necessarily connected to these signs. Do you like my props, by the way? Yeah, I mean, this is cheap. We got foam board from Staples, uh, cardstock, Calibri font, and some stands. So I did a good job. So you don't care, but that's all right. Uh, <laughs> What was I saying? Oh, on the Sabbath, they were to focus on four big things. Rest from work, which we do have on a sign up here. Prayer, devotion to prayer, uh, community, friends, family, assembly with the church, and worship. Not the church, but the tribes in worship. So rest and worship, community, and prayer. Those are the things that, for Israel, made up the very core and the heart of the Sabbath. Now, one of the things that we've said in the series, and this is just catch up for those of you who haven't been here, Jesus changed the nature of how Sabbath happens in people's lives. It's not, uh, you and I are not required to do exactly what the Israelites were required to do. They, again, very strict for them. Do not veer from the six days on and the one day off. That was very set in stone for them. And there are some profound reasons why and some purposes for that, and we'll walk through those uh, in a moment. But they could not veer from that. However, with Jesus, things change. It's a little bit more open. We're free to sort of implement Sabbath however we can into our lives. It could be daily, it could be weekly, it could be uh, monthly, it could be annually. However, you know, whatever fits your life rhythm and schedule and so forth, you're free to do it. I kind of think when God says things like, look, you're free to implement time with me however you want, that actually makes it harder than if it's just a straight-on command. And so it's a, it seems easier, it seems more freeing, but it's actually a little bit more difficult for us and perhaps it was uh, for them. And the heart of the Sabbath, again, prayer and worship, community and rest from work, all that stuff's still in play. I mean, you're not going to find anything different in the New Testament. God still wants time with us, and that's kind of the bottom line. And to do that, you need to break from uh, work and all the things that have your attention. I was talking to our friend and rabbi and lover of Jesus, altogether interesting, uh, Derek Lehman, who did our Seder dinner here. And I said, wow, we get whistles for that guy every week. <laughs> Um, my name's Derek, too. <laughs> uh, side note. Well, never mind. Um, but I was talking to him, and he said about the Sabbath and the way Israel did it and the way uh, we can choose to do it. He said, look, as Christians, we can follow it the way Israel did. You're welcome to do that. And sometimes it's great to do that for a season. But he said you don't have to. You're not required to. And I just want to make that clear because I know that in the beginning of this, it was like, what is he saying and telling us that we're supposed to do? Nothing more than the scriptures were saying 
And, uh, and Jesus definitely changed the nature of the way rest from work and time with God looks. And again, it's free for you to figure out how that translates into your life. Again, on the stage, we have four uh, signs. And all the way over here to your left, and say this with me, this one has the word rest. Very good. The next one in line has the word story. That's good. Let's get a little bit better at this. Uh, this one has the word perfect. And then all the way over here is the word God. Now, if you're like me, you're trying to figure out which one comes first, what are they each about, and why are they all different heights? I don't know. Uh, as I told first hour, there are solid answers for two of those questions. Um, I'll let you figure it out as we go. But this is a visual outline for you. So I'm going to move through these signs, not necessarily in this order, but I'm going to move through these signs, and you'll know when we're done because I'll hit the fourth one. So you can go grab your kids and head to lunch. Um, but this is where we're going today. And in in the sermon today, this is the final of the fifth week of the series. This is the final one in the series. There's some built-in review. So if you haven't been with us, uh, some of this will be new for you, but it will be review for most people. And I've put a little bit of a different spin uh, in each one so that there's some new things uh, to learn and whatever. And so this is where we're going today. This is the final week uh, in this series, and we're quite excited uh, to see what's happening. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11. We have all sorts of things to cover, so uh, uh, Blues Riff NB, watch me for the changes. Here we go. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it what? Holy. This is the word that does not mean perfect or pure or without blemish. It means different, separate, set apart. So this day or this moment, the Sabbath moment is special. Six days you shall labor. The word labor comes from the Hebrew word abed, which means slave. So it's not a command about laziness. It's about hard work. Labor, it says, and do all your work. Verse 10. But the seventh day is a Sabbath. The word Sabbath means stop, cease, step away, take a break, rest. Some historians say that it's also connected to the word seven. And so uh, the seventh day is to be a Sabbath, a stopping day, to the Lord. That's a big phrase there, to the Lord your God. So the, the day is to God. On it, you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your manservant, or maidservant, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. If, you're, if you were here last Sunday, that's where we sat. I think this came alive last week. Sabbath is not just about me. It's not just personal. It's not just time alone with God, just me and him. But it's also, it has this influential component where Sabbath rest should flow from me to the people in my life, those closest to me. It says my family, those who work with me or for me, and perhaps those who depend on me. However, I can bring peace and rest to the people within my reach and care. That's the nature of the Sabbath. Four, and this is the guilt trip from God here for the Israelites. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Not because, again, God needs a nap. He's not tired. You don't want to follow a God who gets tired. But it's just this moment where God is saying, I even stepped back and just marveled at the things I've done, and you should do the same. And therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for this place that we can come and meet and sing and remember you through the communion and the Lord's Supper. God, as we talk through your scriptures, your word, that you will just teach us and encourage us. Uh, and in Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Now, uh, let's just walk through this. The very first cut on the command is quite simple. You don't have to be a rocket science to figure this out. God is simply telling Israel to what? Rest. Take a break. Now, the reason he's doing this, there's threefold. The reason he's doing this is 
Uh, Israel's understanding at the time about how life worked and how work worked and just how everything worked was defined by and ultimately shaped by their experience as slaves in Egypt. That's all they knew. So when God's giving them this command to rest, it's the first time he's spoken to them as a nation, by the way, and he's given them this command to rest from their work, work six days, take a day off. It's all brand new to them. Their context for living was slavery. That's all they knew. Egypt, where they were slaves, had shaped and formed their understanding of life. And so it was certainly the first time in Israel's existence that they were experiencing freedom on this level. They were experiencing freedom to do whatever it is they wanted to do. They could eat whatever they wanted to eat. They could eat when they wanted to eat. They could marry who they wanted to marry. They could live where they wanted to live. They could make money however they wanted to make money. They could create business, economy, however they wanted to do it. They could be homeless if they wanted to. They could run off. They could abandon. They could live in safety with their kids. They could do all of these things in freedom, whereas before they couldn't. And when it came to work, you work 24-7 as a slave. If you don't work, you fall down in the slave chain, which ultimately leads to either no food for days or death. And so when God gives them this command to rest, it's just really coming at them through a difficult grid of understanding of how life uh, for them worked. So first and foremost, the top cut on this command is God saying, look, rest, namely, because you can. You don't have to live the way that you used to live. Does this make sense? You don't have to do that anymore is what God is saying. I was watching this story of uh, a family here in the States that adopted a Haitian girl. They brought her into her home. This is obviously recently. And they were interviewing the family about the transition for the girl, young girl. And they said, were there any struggles in the beginning? And you may have seen this story. It's been on several shows and news, whatever. Uh, Were there any struggles in the beginning with the girl, and they said, oh yeah, mealtime. We'd put food on the table, and she would inhale it, and we've had to teach her that we're going to feed you again. You'll get food again, twice more. During the, you're going to get food, and so there was a lear- there's a learning curve for her in this new world, and for Israel, certainly a learning curve for them. It was 24-7, seven days a week. That's how you lived, and that's how you died, and so God says, just take a break because you can. You don't, have to, you don't have to live that way anymore. But if you drop down a little bit further into why God is asking them to take a day off, think about it this way. Again, their whole existence was slavery. That's what they understood about life. And whether it's good or bad, that's a formation piece for them. That's how they understand in terms of how life works. And so God is building into the ethos of the nation of Israel this protective system against them becoming exactly like the environment they left. Take a day off, because I know it's weird to understand for you, but take a day off, he's saying, so that you don't replicate where you came from. Now, most of Israel's history beyond this point will be the prophets speaking back into their, uh, speaking back into the nation, saying, you're becoming Egypt. Amos, which I know you're all reading this time of year, Amos is all up in the face of Israel saying, you're just like the slave drivers that you left. You, have, you, you were freed from that, but you have become the very thing that you were freed from. And so God is building into the rhythm of this nation this protective system against becoming a place, once again, that requires everybody to labor and slave like they used to. If you think about it, 
it's just easy, and Israel will do this a lot too, as we do as well. It's just easy to go back to what we know, right? There's a wonderful verse in the Bible, in the Proverbs, uh, chapter 26, verse 11. It says, as a dog returns to its vomit, so a fool returns to his folly. And that's true. It doesn't mean it's right. It's just, it's just what we do. We're, we're, there's a formation piece to our life, and maybe we're comfortable with that, and so we just drop back into those patterns. It's like the kid, like when I was in youth ministry, there's always the kid who hates his family, but he becomes his dad. Not because he likes it, but that's the formation. That's what he understands. That's what he knows. And it's a long journey to get out of that. And so for Israel, same thing. There were many times where they would go back into the very, they became the very thing that they hated. Our newest staff person, Jessica, uh, she's getting used to Atlanta. And she came in the other day and she said, why is everybody blowing their horn at me? (laughs) And I said, oh, I love the horn, by the way, but that's just me. Uh, I said, give it some time. You'll become, you'll become that person that you hate. It'll just happen. I mean, Peachtree Road all day is just a horn, you know. Um, and so God was building into the nation this rhythm, this protective system and the rhythm of their culture so that they wouldn't become the slave drivers. But most importantly, and we've said this a lot this series, and let me say it one more time. God is reminding them or perhaps teaching them for the first time that what you do does not define who you are, but what I do in you, that's your definition that your worth is defined by what I can do in you and through you, not what you can do alone. Now, what we do in our work, with our work, in our world, is God is extremely interested in. What we do is very important to Him. But God views work very differently than perhaps many of us do. There's a wonderful verse in Colossians 3, verse 17, where Paul says this, Whatever you do, it's a big term, whatever, it includes everything, by the way. Whatever you do, and then he qualifies it, whether in word or deed, that's everything. Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. So work, from the perspective of God and the Scriptures, is work is something that flows out of what God is doing in me. And so what God is doing in me flows into my work, and it gives my work worth. Work does not give me ultimate worth. Uh, we took a student out to lunch last week, an ex-college student, not ex as in like she ran away, but she graduated from University of Georgia. Any fans, University of Georgia fans? <laughs> Father. No, she's one of my old youth group kids, graduated from Georgia. I uh, took her out to lunch last week, and... She was telling us at the graduation, Alton Brown spoke. Anybody know who Alton Brown is? Okay, now we're talking. Uh, Before you clap, he went to Georgia. Uh, So Alton Brown went to Georgia, grew up in Atlanta, speaking at UGA's graduation. He's talking about life, all the stuff you talk about when you're speaking to those things. And he said this. She told us this. I nodded, smiled, and wrote it down. I said, I can use that. Uh, I can buy five minutes with that in my next sermon. Uh, He said to them, I want you to understand something about work, and it's pretty much this. People fill jobs, and you know the next part, jobs don't fill people. What a God-like thing to say. It's what God was saying with the Sabbath. It's not what you do. It's what I'm doing. And what I'm doing in you will certainly affect what you do, but let's start 
with what's first. So God tells Israel, look, take a break because you can. I need to build within your system as a nation a protective, you know, a protective wall against becoming the very slave drivers that you left. And more than anything, it's about you and me, not about what you can do. And so when Israel Sabbathed, it was a reminder of that. But the second thing about the Sabbath for Israel is like when Israel took a break from work, and you have to imagine this is a massive nation of people, and it wasn't like they lived in isolation. There were certainly other cultures that interacted with them and did business with them and watched them. And so when Israel took a break, when they, when they did observe the Sabbath, which they struggled to do, but when they did, you can imagine that everybody around them, they noticed that. It wasn't hard to look in the window and see that the mall was closed. Because this whole nation of people just, you know, shut their computers and stopped working. And so when Israel took a break from work, one of the things that it was doing, because everybody was noticing, it was telling a story. And namely, the story that they were telling was simply, it was this announcement, this story, that, hey, we're not in Egypt anymore. We're, not, we're no longer slaves. In the Deuteronomy uh, passage, in the Deuteronomy version of the Ten Commandments, Moses, he adds this little piece at the very end of the, of the same command about the Sabbath. We have all the same stuff. Don't work six days. People in your house, people to work for you, etc. And right down here in verse 15, it says, remember that you were slaves in Egypt. This is part of the Sabbath command, that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. So when they observed the Sabbath day, it was telling a story of some kind, a story of what God had done. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we looked into this uh, story in Nehemiah. Just very quickly, just off the cuff, I read from Nehemiah 13. It's the very last chapter of the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah was rebuilding Jerusalem in the mid-400s B.C. It had been just ransacked, and it was in pieces. So he's rebuilding the city wall, and the city is functioning again, and there's trade, and there's business, and commerce, and all this stuff, sort of stuff going on. And he noticed that they, the Israelites were doing business on the Sabbath. And so he goes to the city gates, which just, just baffles me, and he orders the city gates to be closed on the Sabbath. No business. The mall is closed, right? And so if you remember the story, there's the story of uh, all those merchants that came from other cultures. And they're all just sitting outside the city gates with their stuff. We buy gold and sell gold and stuff. They're just sitting there for 24 hours until the gates reopen. And Nehemiah told him, you're not getting in here and doing business on the Sabbath. It's interesting. And you have to imagine that they're sitting there and somebody says, why, why are we sitting here? And they say, well, I don't quite know, but I overheard somebody talking, and they were talking about how they overheard two people talking down by the south gate, and they were talking about how these people used to be slaves in Egypt and how God delivered them. I think, that's, I think that's the story. And so when Israel stopped, it was telling this story. Hey, we're not in Egypt anymore. We don't have to do that. We can rest. And there's a story behind that. Now, we do the same thing. We're in here today, so we're resting from our work. I assume that some of you are doing business on your phones. I get that. But most of us are resting from our work because it's what God's asked us to do. Just give me some time. Give me some moments. And it's also telling a story 
about what God has done for us. That's why we're here. I assume that when the apartments light up on Sundays around us and the hotels are waking up, there's some kid in the window saying, Dad, why are all those people going in and out of that strange-looking building? And uh, the dad says, I, I, I think it has something to do with Jesus. And so when we stop, when you tell your friends, like, I can't do that on Sunday because I'm going here, it's a story. It's telling a story. And so when Israel rested from work, it was a statement about what was most important for them, that God was working in them and so on. But their relationship with him was uh, the prime thing. But it also told a story. It told a story of what God had done about his deliverance for them. But finally, in the command it says that the Sabbath is to be a day to the Lord. So at the heart of the Sabbath, it's this. It's about God. And so, regardless of however those things take place for you and for me, this is the heart of it. That God is wanting uh, some time with us. It's that simple. That the Sabbath was a day, it says, to the Lord. And this has been the main focus uh, for us in here. It's, it's very, very simple. Let me just say it very simply for you. God wants to spend time with us. That's, that's it, right? And we live in this world that is very difficult to do that because time is... We have all these scheduling issues and stress and chaos and hectic lives, all of us. And uh, God understands that we live in that kind of world. But this whole thing about Sabbath or about moments with God is simply about spending time with Him. That's it. And however that translates into your life for you, daily, weekly, twice a day, twice a week, monthly, annually, all four or five, however that works for you, however you're developing this personal devotional life with God is up to you. It's your choice. It's your freedom. But at the end of the day, that's what God wants. And you and I, again, we live in this world. It's a world of pace, of schedules, of relationships, of struggles, and so on. And we call it life. It's like the thing that we do. There are things that we must do. There are things that we love to do. There are things that we are passionately pursuing in life. And then there's God, creator, maker, lover, God, and God wants a piece of our time too, which is tough for us to hear, especially here in the West, where two of our greatest currencies are time and money. And between the two, time will often win out over money. We'll throw money at things we just can't put our time into. And that's understandable because we just can't keep redlining our calendar, although sometimes we find ourselves in that situation. So when we hear things like, God wants some time with you. It just There's a spiritual tension and a frustration because it's like, where, where am I going to put that? Where am I going to do that, right? And so God knows this. He knows that he'll spend my entire life and your entire life struggling and fighting for my attention. That's what he's going to do. And because we have lives, we have work, we have responsibilities, we have relationships to uphold and work to do and so on. And so all those things are sharing space and time with God's pursuit to get our attention. And he knows that. He understands that. But the text says, look, when you break, when you Sabbath, it's to the Lord. So you have to put these things into place. I have to put these things into place. We have to build into our schedules these Sabbath moments. Now, Sabbath for the Israelites was a day to let their relationship with God catch up to them. And that should make sense because this may be, this experience, this gathering may be that for you. Like, man, I haven't thought about God all week. This is great. It can catch up with me. God gets that. We're going to have those moments where it's like, I don't know where I've been. I don't know where he's been, but I'm just going to stop here for a moment and just let the relationship come back together. Let it catch up with me. And so we need that just like they did. We need that 
too. We need to make sure that God and our relationship with him is a priority in our lives. It's just that, it's that simple. So to Sabbath is to rest. And there's all sorts of things with that. It's a story that gets told. Again, at the most simple level, at the basic level, just by being here, it's a story that you're telling, hopefully. And at the bottom of it all is God. Time with, just time with God. That's all it is. And maybe you're great at time with God. Maybe you uh, have a wonderful devotional life, and that's good. That's the way it should, that's the way it should be. But this is what the Sabbath looked like for the Israelites. Rest, announcement, story. God is the center of it all. The surrounding cultures would see that. This is what it looked like for them. It's what it looks like for us too. It's time to rest, to be reminded that we're not the sum of what we can do, but our worth is found in what God is doing in us. We've said that. And in that rest, we tell a story, the story of God's work in our lives, We stop to remember all that he has done for us, namely that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world. Hello. And down at the heart of the Sabbath, or any sort of moment with God, is God. To rest from work is to spend time with God. It's that simple. And that all makes sense. It totally makes sense. Practice these things and enjoy the results, like the results of finding rest, right? Both physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, the results of remembering the story that God has unfolded in your own life, the story of what God has done, the results of growing in your relationship with God. That's all, that all makes sense. But there's one more thing about the Sabbath. One more thing about rest and time with God. There's one more thing that you and I have to know about the Sabbath or about any moment with God. That Sabbath... It's only a rehearsal. It's just a rehearsal. I mean, time with God is is beautiful. A solid prayer life, we should want that. Learning how to find our ultimate worth in God is that's the right path. Practicing rest and Sabbath in our lives is certainly one of the best things that we can do. It ought to be one of the biggest things that we chase in our spiritual life. And there should be no giving up on our relationship with God. Never. That should be a fight day in and day out to keep that thing alive. But at the end of the day, Sabbath is just a rehearsal. Sabbath is not the whole story. Sabbath is really somewhat broken. It's in pieces. It doesn't really always work. Because Sabbath coexists with struggle and tension and stress and loss in our world. Even if I, like, mastered Sabbath, like, I could write a book on it, like, do this, do this, do this, do this, and that equals, like, peace with God. I know there's books like that. But even if I could master the Sabbath and put something out on paper, like, and you would look at me and go, man, if I could just Sabbath like our pastor, right? Even if I, <laughs> even if I mastered the art of Sabbath, it's still a broken system. Sabbath is a part of our story, but it's not the whole story. You know why? Because Egypt is still alive. There's an Egypt in every single life. 
There's something in your past that won't let you move on. There's something in your present that will not let you move on. When there's something or someone in my life that will not let me move on, it's like slavery. It's like captivity. Slavery and captivity have no room for rest. They will not allow it. We all have an Egypt in our history. It may be addiction or abuse or fear or doubt. It may be failure. It may be divorce, adultery. It may be loss. Last week between services, a guy came up to me and said, Derek, I just want you to know that there's no Sabbath in depression. And he's he's right. Egypt is still alive. Even if we escaped for a little while, like we just found a moment with God and it just, wow, I feel great. Even if we escaped for a little while, trouble and unrest and stress and chaos will find you again. Amen? It'll find you. You know this to be true. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you get this. You practice and discipline yourself to grow in your faith. You're dropping roots all the way down. You're trying to grow and grow stronger and stronger in your faith. And then life happens. And then you're in pieces again. And you return to God and you say, fix me. I'm broken. Right? I know that you understand this. There's still an Egypt in everybody's life. Paul says in uh, the book of Romans chapter 8, You may have heard this before. I've read it often this year already. But he says this about creation, about the world that we live in, about the life that we're living in this place. He says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Paul is saying, The world is broken. And we know it. Those who don't know it freak me out. When they can look at our world and go, Looks good to me. Oyster. It's my oyster. The world is broken. It's groaning, he says, right? All the way up to the present time. There's a sense in which the world is in pain. In Hebrews chapter 4, you're going to like this. It's too long to read the whole thing, but I'm going to give you a verse. I mean, it's like a chapter and a half. It's about the Sabbath. It talks about Israel. It talks about the history, etc., how they didn't obey it. Most of the time they struggled with it. They fought it. God was all in their face going, seriously, take a break. You're becoming slave drivers. The story is changing. All that's in there. Then in verse 9, the writer says this, There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall by following their example, Israel, of disobedience. This is a picture of eternity. Because Sabbath, no matter how great you are at it, it's not sufficient. It's incomplete. It's broken. It's just, it's just a rehearsal. I mean, the good news is that nothing has really changed. I mean, God, this is what God still does. God still rescues us from all kinds of slavery. Like the story of God's rescue in our lives, it still stands. He still breaks the chains of slavery and sin. He still cuts the locks off the gates of oppression. He still leads us from whatever we're in into something new, something better, he, because he cares for us. He wants to provide for us because we belong to him. And to Sabbath is to find rest in God's saving presence. Psalm 46.10 nails it. Be still and know that I am God. Like to be still and know that God is here. At the start of everything before creation, he was there. At the end of this whole thing, he'll be there. God has not left us alone. To Sabbath is to remember that God saves. He still does that. And the promise of Scripture, this is cool, all the way through, the promise of Scripture is that this world that we live in, broken, 
groaning in pain, there'll be a moment when it gets fixed. Heaven crashes into earth one final time, repairing everything that's been broken. Now, nowhere in the Scriptures is this idea that the earth blows apart like the Death Star, you know. The picture in the Scriptures is God repairing the world that we live in. I mean, it's a world of struggle. There's uh, all kinds of chaos, war, injustice, ecological disasters. All of this is present. But the Scriptures talk about how God makes all of that new and better, that heaven will collide with earth again, and God will repair everything that's been broken in Revelation 21. Verses 1 through 4, the writer says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. See, I want to be around for that. For the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there was no longer any sea. Hard to imagine. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, right? This image of something new. Coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice say from the throne, now the dwelling of God is with men. So heaven collides with earth. And it's like the beginning. It's like the beginning of the story. It's Eden, where it's God and man are one, right? To live with men. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. But verse 4 is the one. He, God, will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, Amen. No more mourning. Amen. No more crying. Amen. This is called preaching. Hang with me. No more pain. Amen. For the old order, all of that has passed away. No more tears. No more death. No more mourning. No more crying. No more pain. No more unemployment. No more injustice. No more oil leaks in the ocean. No more things that are just destroying our souls, our lives, our families, our earth, all of that is gone. And I love the visual of God wiping away the tears. And aren't tears just the product of suffering? Isn't that all it is? I mean, even the tears that fall down our faces because of something joyful, they only fall because we know the difference. They fall because we have seen or been through something that's fantastic, but we know that that's not the story of the way the world works. And we cry over joyful things because they're a glimpse of what should be. And we cry because we know they won't last. And tomorrow will be another struggle. Can you imagine never crying? This is the promise. There's no more tears. But we cry because we know that these things don't last. Because tomorrow again will be another struggle, be another fight. Another day of feeling lost and broken. And in the rhythm of our lives and in our weeks, we return to this very room every seven days, as it were, for repair and encouragement and all sorts of like a soul lift, if you will. When Jesus said the words, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, they hit home because that's what we're chasing. That's what we're after. And when God promises a day when the tears will stop, again, very hard to imagine, it's the ultimate Sabbath. And again, the writer of Hebrews, as the writer of Psalms, he nailed it. 
There's a Sabbath rest for all of God's people. And to Sabbath is to remember that. It's to announce a better day. It isn't a small way, and it's just a rehearsal, but it's in a small way of living out that future reality now. The rabbis have a saying about the Sabbath, and it goes like this, Mien olam haba, and it means the Sabbath is a taste of the world to come. That's it. It's not the world to come, but it's a taste. It's to think and to live eternity. eternity. When you spend time with God, when you're in prayer, when you're reading the scriptures, when you're alone, solitude, meditation, just being still when you're resting, it's a taste of the world to come. So why do you Sabbath? Why do you take time out of your day to read the scriptures? Why do you walk away from us to pray? Why do you leave obligations undone and turn your back on stress? Why do you rest? Because it reminds me of the world that is to come. It reminds me of where I'm going. It reminds me of where this earth is going. It reminds me that even if I become awesome at what I do, even if I become the little God with a little G over all that I do in this life, that I'm still not the God who threw the stars in the sky. I'm still not the one who gave his life for the sins of the world. Thank you very much. That I'm still not the Lord of heaven and of earth, and I never will be, but that I simply belong to him, and I'm trusting him with my past, my present, and my future. The Sabbath promises a day of joy that is ahead. Some of us, many of us, all of us, we struggle to rest in God simply because this is all there is, right? We run a hectic and chaotic life schedule because you only live once. I grew up in the 80s. Anybody? That's right. Acid wash. Great music. Uh, It was a bumper sticker on a lot of cars, and it said this, he who dies with the most toys wins. Wins what? What do you win? I've been to a lot of funerals in my career, and they don't take anything with them. People try. They shove stuff in the casket, jewelry, stuffed animals, pictures, books, belongings, letters, notes, her favorite blanket. They do that. But it doesn't, it's not like you die and go to heaven and God says, I'm glad you brought your iPod because we're running short. Jesus said it this way, what good is it if a man gains the whole world and yet forfeits or loses his soul? It's no good. It's just no good. In John's gospel, Jesus said these words, you know them, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, speaking of himself, that whoever believes in him, and again, that is not about believing he exists. That phrase, the the English lets us down, but that phrase is about trusting what Jesus is saying and what he's doing, what he's promising. To believe in Jesus is to trust Jesus. It's saying, I'm going that way. Baptism, in the water, out of the water, 
is this announcement, I'm going that way. I'm going the way of Jesus. And Jesus says, he who believes in me will not die, but have eternal life. And that's what we want, right? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, he, God, has set eternity on the hearts of men. It's like a honing device. It's what we chase. Eternity. But we can't fathom it, so we hang on to what we have, and we work it and work it and work it and work it. And we have temporary life, but Jesus is saying, trust me. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Trust me. Believe in me. Follow me. Give your life back to me. And get the kind of life that God lives, which is, it has no borders. It's eternal. There's a world to come. A repaired and renewed world that God invites us into. I was kicking myself last service. I didn't read my C.S. Lewis, but let me read it to you. So you're privileged. It's C.S. Lewis. You know, what I'm about to read to you is like one sentence, but it's very long. He's speaking about heaven. He says, The golden apple of selfhood thrown among the false gods became an apple of discord because they scrambled for it. They did not know the first rule of the holy game which is that every player must by all means touch the ball and then immediately pass it on. To be found with it in your hands is a fault. To cling to it, death. But when it flies to and fro among the players, too swift for the eye to follow, and the great master himself leads the revelry, giving himself eternally to his creatures in the generation and back to himself in the sacrifice of the word, then indeed, the eternal dance makes heaven drowsy with the harmony. I just, I just love how he writes. All pains and pleasures we have known on earth are early initiations in the movements of that dance. But the dance itself is strictly incomparable with the sufferings of this present time. It's just a rehearsal. It's just a glimpse. It's just a taste. As we draw nearer to its un- uncreated rhythm, Pain and pleasure sink almost out of sight. There is joy in the dance, but it does not exist for the sake of joy. It does not even exist for the sake of good or of love. It is love himself and good himself and therefore happy, and this is it. It does not exist for us, but we exist for it. That is a wonderful description of there's a day when God will wipe away every tear. And whatever our current struggles are, whatever our current situation is, is so small compared to what God is going to do in the world to come. And so as an invitation to you, really, I just invite you very simply to trust Jesus. Trust Him with your life. Trust Him with everything that you have. Trust Him with your time, your money your mind, your heart, your soul, your strength, your whole life. Trust Him. If you come here every single week and Jesus is sort of like this teacher, and you're like, eh, some wisdom there, but He's not like Lord for you, I'm inviting you to trust Him and to come to Him and say, I'm weary, I'm burdened. You said come, I'm here. Give me rest, eternal rest, eternal life, etc. 
That's the invitation. And to be buried with him in baptism. It was the way of the church. It was the way of the first Christians. It was the way Jesus instructed, come to me, right? Trust me, be with me, and then tell that story in your baptism. So we invite you to do that. We invite you to communicate with us, me, find me down here, put it in the card, on the basket, I don't care, but just let us know, look, I want, I'm ready. I want to trust Jesus. Because again, there's a world coming, a repaired and a renewed world that God invites you into. And Jesus, one of the most frightening things Jesus said was, a lot of you call me Lord, but God doesn't know who you are because there's no relationship. It's just religion to you. It's, I'm in here, check, worship, check, offering, check, communion, check, saying the songs, okay, check. Lord, Lord, I called you Lord. God says, I don't know who you are because you never stopped to be with me. So the goal, I would guess, is not to spend less time with God, but more. And that starts with an initial, I'm trusting you. I want to be with you. I'm coming to you. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to move into communion, which is a beautiful time in here where people come to the, one of the four tables, and they take the bread and the juice, which is, again, is a story of what God has done through Christ on the cross. You can relax. I know you're grabbing all your stuff. But we're going to move into that time. I'll pray. When I'm finished, you can make your way to a table. The baskets are on the table as well for offering or anything you want to communicate to us on those cards. Um, and then after that, we're going to sing together. And then don't leave because I have one uh, announcement or something I'm going to ask uh, of you. So uh, just take some time. We've got a few minutes and spend, spend it in prayer with God communion. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day and for this place and um, that you've allowed us to meet in. And thank you for this uh, meal that we're about to partake in, this, this bread and the juice and, and, what it, and the story that it tells, Father, that you came, you died for us, and you're inviting us into that relationship with you. And What a great story. And God, as, as we close down this track of sermons and conversations about Sabbath and rest, and just give us the heart to spend time with you. Give us the heart to carve out moments where they are only about you. Father, help us to be a church that uh, finds everything that she needs in you and that that flows out into our city and into the neighborhoods and the buildings in which all these people live and work and struggle and, and give us opportunities to uh, be the place that serves those in need, that brings rest to the lives of people. We love you. We thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name that we pray and everyone said, amen.